Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Uh, joining me today as my co-briefer is the uh, always terrific Matt Adams. Thank you for joining us in this luxury-focused briefing today. We're going to find out what kind of a sybarite uh, you are. That means luxury addict, by the way. Um, and we're joined by our uh, cultural, uh, our, our, our crew of cultural experts, Gemma, Jackie, and Carrera. Thanks for, for joining us this, uh, for this special briefing. And um, yeah, I think we're going to be pretty clear about this one. This is, uh, we love to, to tap in and talk about what's going on with the 1% and the 0.001% sometimes. Figure out how that's changing culture. And, um, you know, we got a really interesting, in interesting question. We didn't want to just have a conversation about, you know, what are the luxury trends. Instead, we wanted to think a little bit about new school luxury and kind of what that means. And, and I'll start here with this question. Um, how is an increasingly diverse and inclusivity-minded population of luxury buyers changing the high-end category? Millennials have some money now. Even Gen Zers have some money, and they, interestingly, have some different expectations. And I think one of the really cool things we're going to see today is where those, reg those, those sort of well-established luxury trends uh, are still present and where there are some new expectations as well. And what might culture, what culture shifts do these, you know, high-end brands need to think about. And, and we'll start here with our uh, element of culture map. I think unsurprisingly, we're seeing perceptual diversity pop up. That is our element of culture about seeing the world through someone else's eyes and perhaps walking a mile in their Christian Louboutins. Um, yeah. So, you know, and getting really that, that important perspective, I'm not surprised to see that there. There are a couple cool ones. I love that meme culture showed up here. It is a good reminder that what is luxurious on TikTok and Instagram is going to be luxurious elsewhere. Matt, you yeah. studied this. Uh, what, yeah. uh, what EOCs here are you particularly interested in? Yeah, the two that I'm really excited about are microcultures and moral imperative, particularly because with microcultures, luxury and the 1% is a microculture. Yes. <laughs> so that's just what it is. And when it comes to moral imperative, when we think about an increasingly diversifying population, we need to think about what are the responsibilities of luxury brands to those that we're actually getting our ideas from um, and also trying to get money from. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. And it's, it's so top of mind. Uh, we were I was speaking uh, earlier with a couple members of Sparks and Honey about um, a post earlier this week uh, from the uh, Business of Fashion talking yeah. about the ways in which black culture is catered to and appropriated from in, uh, in, in, in the high-end uh, yeah. market. And we're we're going to talk a little bit about that, but it's definitely sent a thousand think pieces uh, uh, a flight. So let's uh, dive on in here. And shout out to the Wall Street Journal, by the way, who provided so much content uh, for, for today's uh, briefing. They're reporting that in the almost 20 years since the Soho House, the private sort of uh, club that you can join, uh, was founded in New York City and other cities, um, that these places have become dense with private membership clubs in a post-pandemic bonanza fueled by demand from all sides. So well, I thought we'd start by talking about the fact that the private club is back. It's a good example of this new school. Luxury. Mm. Now, many of these private clubs look different than the all-male, cigar-smoke-filled rooms uh, of the past. Today, they're far more likely to have co-working spaces and fitness uh, places attached. But at the same time, they still have some of these classic amenities, restaurants, bars, even tiny boutique hotels have popped up mm. uh, in them. Um, but they're all also essentially where the rich and affluent want to hang around with each other, which was true in 1850 as it is true in, you know, uh, 2022. It's worth noting, and I think I'll point 
point that's out here. Maybe this is me editorializing a little bit because it wasn't necessarily in the piece that, you know, millennials have reached an age where their where their parents and their grandparents with uh, money join country clubs, right? There is an instinct when you hit a certain age to join one of these groups. I think it's important to point out that wealthy millennials, the really wealthy ones, are a lot less likely to live in the suburbs and a lot more likely to live in a place where access to the Soho house or, or whichever one you want to join um, feels, uh, you know, feels like something aspirational. So it's both one of those new behaviors and kind of those old behaviors. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth pointing out, and my question for the panel here is, we are thinking about inclusion, we are thinking about heterogeneity. You know, these clubs are a lot more female-looking, and while they are uh, predominantly white, they are not monolithically white or monolithically Christian in the way the country clubs used to be. So I'm curious what you make of sort of that tension of these sort of old-school spaces that are having sort of new-school members joining, and if that's a, you know, taking over a space that used to not let you in, or if it's you know, something maybe a little bit more problematic than that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, it's an interesting signal. I, I have a hunch that throughout the course of the briefing, we're going to be talking about luxury products, luxury food and beverage and travel and fashion goods. But to think of community and the quality of your community mm. as a luxury that you would pay for is super interesting when I think about this signal. Yeah. Um, and I think that we'll see a lot of different groups and clubs pop up that, that cater to different people. Maybe the more expensive ones that get editorialized might, you know, stratify in, in terms of wealth, which we know is usually white and yeah. male and, and, and secondarily female. Um, but, I, you know, I see clubs popping up all the time for every type of uh, socioeconomic kind of uh, lane. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think coming out of the pandemic, like, uh, community is a, a luxury. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll see more of this. I love that. Matt, you brought up microcultures. I mean, could we yeah. see high-end clubs pop up for every little microculture, not just for people who just want to hobnob with other, you know, people in finance, but yeah. high-end clubs for people who are obsessed with manga or with, <laughs> uh, you know, particular TV shows. I don't yeah. know. I, that kind of sounds like the the manifestation or the tangible manifestation of Discord. So, like, if mm. Discord was to start having in real life clubs for certain servers, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, I think this is really interesting because with the Soho House, even though it is a very luxury space, it's very expensive to get in there, they still have a lot of services and yeah. uh, events that cater to a wide perspective of culture. Yeah. And it actually informs people of what's going on outside of their typical you know, yeah. narratives. And I so. think they've, Soho House has done a pre- I mean, I don't know if it's a perfect job, but they've definitely yeah. tried to position themselves as a face that feels fairly open. It's not like the sort of failed, um, what was that experiment with the guy who did the fire festival who like took over a townhouse and they've avoided some of those, uh, yeah. some of those traps. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our next signal here. I said uh, last Tuesday's briefing, we talked about the celebrity private jet scandal where figures like Kylie Jenner and Taylor Swift were found to be flying private planes for mere minutes, putting huge amounts of uh, greenhouse gases for little or no reason to drive across LA for God six, uh, with one hilarious and exasperated Twitter user commenting on the story, why do I even bother recycling? Um, but as the Wall Street Journal again reports, the real users of private jets today aren't celebrities. They're just fairly regular affluent people. Indeed, private jet use is up significantly, especially a young, among young wealthy people, first who were trying to avoid like the pandemic in 2020 and 2021, and now avoid the general chaos of going to the airport. You know, you can show up to the airport and your jet can take off in about 12 minutes, right? Mm. Um, you know, there are different tastes for these groups, right? So uh, just a quick quote here. Uh, quote, people believe our clientele want caviar and champagne, but believe it or not,
or not, they usually want McDonald's and Burger King, a private jet industry expert told the Wall Street Journal. But we usually hear if it's the Fiji water, if it's the Essentia water and not Fiji water. So they still have a couple interesting uh, pretensions. And, you know, I mean, I guess my big question here is like, this article says you can rent a private jet for somewhere between eight and $10,000 an hour, right? That is four or five times more expensive than taking the, you know, a regular first class flight to say Miami from New York, but it's not a whole lot more expensive. It's only a couple thousand dollars more when it comes down to it. So I'm curious what you think is driving this. Is it social media? Is it meme culture? Is it celebrity culture? What might be pushing people to private jets beyond just the fact that LaGuardia or, or I don't know, Philly International Airport can be a, a nightmare? Gemma, what do you think? We have to think, think about, like, why do people want to rent a private jet, first of all, like, for, just for selfie? And is the private jet life, like, the Democrat democratization of private jet is it real because mm-hmm. two years ago there were news on the internet about influencers actually posting in a studio um, it's like a private jet studio with locks furnishing and backlit windows but it's not the real thing yeah and the per hour visit for the studio it's like thir- like 64 dollars an hour compared to like eight thousands and actually traveling somewhere I feel like the followers of the people on social media and just need to remember that it's the influencer's job to create a lifestyle and aspirations. Mm -hmm. So people, the public, have something to look forward to, but that's not the real life in general. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think there's always going to be people who are motivated by the way that they look on social media, and I think that, like, the Kardashians are an exception even within celebrity culture. But I, I think for the most part, this is driven by circumstance. And most mm. people who mm. are, like I found out recently that someone I know has access to a private jet. And I never have never seen anything about it. Or gotten they an invite. Rel- <laughs> <laughs> um, and they were like relatively kind of like embarrassed to talk about it. Mm. People, I think it's something that, I mean, like look at the way that Taylor Swift is gotten all this backlash it's not something that you really want to advertise necessarily but it is something that yeah if you have the access to it you know yeah. why wouldn't you avoid going to the airport it almost feels like inversely proportionate like the better known figure you are the less likely you are to talk about your flights on a private jet but if you're some random person with forty-five thousand followers or or whatever some fashion influencer you might actually heavily promote that steve can i call on you very quickly because you have an interest in the aeronautics category and i'm curious your take on this there's a really important financial underpinning to this signal, which is that private jets are a tax write-off. You can write off 100% of the price of an aircraft to your LLC. So anyone who has an LLC, who has enough money to, within that, pay the price of it for them, it's just a way to draw down their annual taxable revenue and income, which is a little gross. Right. We should switch back to something that's a little more environmentally uh, sustainable, but also luxurious, like a private train or a dirigible, anything sort of 19th century wealthy. Yeah. Uh, Hey, we're talking about private clubs. Okay. Um, we have found a ton of really interesting stuff about food culture, so let's jump into a little block about that. Yeah, so in this block, we're going to talk more about food. So this one, Bon Appetit, put me onto this new restaurant that I'm going to try out, um, and it's perfect for this conversation on the shifting narratives around um, our population. So Hags, uh, this is a New York only. Uh, this is a, this is New York's only self-described queer fine dining restaurant, uh, where the co-owners Justice and Lindsay aim to reimagine what luxury comfort and representation looks like and who it's for. So there's five different, uh, there's a five course menu, which is priced at around $155 or all vegan $145. Uh, So it's pretty uncommon 
you know, to have a prefix meal underneath $300 here in New York City. So that's already uh, pretty accessible. But on top of that, they have this option on Sundays where you can pay what you can. So it's not a new offer, but it's something that shows that they're trying to be inclusive from their architecture all the way down to the prices that they have. So my question here, because luxury has been so... It's so focused on this exclusivity at the end of the day. Uh, how could you imagine other verticals redefining luxury outside of clash boundaries? Mm. It's a, like, I, I, I guess I think about how we started the briefing saying that luxury is for the 1% or the 0.001%, but luxury is, is, is almost pervasive. Like The trend is set, sure, by the 1%, right. but then it trickles down. It's kind of like that Devil Wears Prada scene where the cerulean sweater that's maybe $5,000 gets picked up by Kmart uh, two years later in the same uh, style. But... Um, no, I think it's interesting to think about the food space um, and how making luxury accessible to new people is, is bringing new people into these experiences and, and how people are wanting this democratization. Yeah, I, I hope I don't sound too cynical in saying this. I mean, well, first of all, I'm fascinated to understand like what the queer food revolution would sort of look like because restaurant kitchens are often fairly queer spaces. It'd be interesting to see people create in that, in that vein as well. Yeah. Um, but I guess my question is with the pay what you can, like... There is a certain luxury, something that I think young consumers want to feel, is they do not want to show up to a restaurant and have the entire place look at the lily white. You know, mm. that is not a luxurious thing. The pay what you will aspect of that seems to be a way to try to bring people in who may not fit that mold of the $155 prefix, right? Which, mm -hmm. let's be clear, it's going to attract a certain clientele. Mm. The only question I have is, is... I, I, I welcome that inclusivity, but is it also trying to dress up the restaurant to make it look like a space that's more accessible than it actually is? Or by having that pay what you will, you actually do make it kind of accessible. I, I, I just don't know where we to land on that tension. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that, I mean, even more than that, I think it's great to change what luxury dining experiences look like, what kitchens look like, and make them more inclusive, more tolerant. But with situations like this where you're doing pay what you will, I think there's such a limit to affordable luxury is almost a myth because when you mm -hmm. consider the it's so expensive and it's so hard to run a restaurant yeah. that succeeds especially in New York City and if what you're doing is you want to have really high end ingredients you want to pay all of your staff like beyond a living wage and you want to offer things at like an accessible price point to someone who can't afford a $145 meal like you're not you're not going to make it yeah. There has to be a sort of trade-off somewhere where you're, it either has to be the cost or... So I think this is a little bit, like, hard to see panning out for mm. me. So the, the, the cuisine might become, or the creativity might become an interesting model, but the, like, finances of it might not work. It seems like a, a struggle for profitability. Kristen, does that track? You've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this industry. Jackie, I was just kind of wondering, is there just a different model on that type of day that, that allows more turnover within the space, that brings more people in, that, that the model isn't exactly what this, this tasting menu as it typically exists looks like? Mm -hmm. um, so that they're, you know, yeah. I, I kind of agree with you, especially these days and, you know, every, you know, to, to really provide, um, you know, the, the staff with the wages that sh should be expected. I, I feel like I don't know how this all 
works out financially. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, I think it's Sparks and Honey, we've just started tossing cannabis in with regular food Batch. and beverage. Batch. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the cannabis space. Yeah, so with cannabis, uh, Chris Weber is actually creating his own luxury cannabis brand, uh, which I think is very interesting uh, as luxury in and of itself is that space where we can find rest and do things at a different level. And cannabis gives that access to people mm-hmm. on all different levels. It gives you spec- <laughs> spa- uh, peace and space in the midst of chaos. So this, um, with this signal here, Herb is talking about how uh, Chris Weber is actually trying to reduce the stigma and change the narrative around cannabis use through this brand. And Players Only is going to collaborate with Quavo, with Haseem Robinson and the Winner's Circles, to name a few, as the brand focuses on partnerships with entertainers, musicians, cultivators, um, and brands to really paint a new vision of luxury that includes cannabis. Especially when you have so many people in jail for cannabis usage, it's really important to start bringing in different players to have that purview so that you can also spark continuous change there. And when we're talking about the Business of Fashion article as well, when we talk about black consumers and what black consumers have to go through here in the United States, I think it's really interesting to think about the role brands play in trying to increase access or even trying to rectify the wrongs that we see here. So I'm wondering, is, you know, are luxury brands collaborating with black, like with black luxury brands? Does that, you know, come off as performative in any way? Is there a way to think about collaboration that isn't just for your own, you know, your Mm -hmm. own image Mm -hmm. at the end of the day? I feel like from the perspective of social impact, cultural preservation, and climate change, like most of the time, almost like all the luxury brands take their inspiration, let's see, from the safari in Africa to like indigenous people's culture in North America or East Asia. And they need to think about how they can launch projects and designing collection that part of the profit could go into like to preserve and uplift the source of their inspiration and that could be a way to go i'm I'm thinking about the recently deceased andre leon talley who Mm. was uh vogue editor for a long time lived a really interesting life and i was reading an obituary about him where he talked about the fact that like he was really instrumental in bringing black faces and creators into Vogue and into the halls of, like, really high fashion. But at the same time, he had other things that he was interested in and I think also in this editorial talked about worried about being pigeonholed that way, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's a really interesting tension but a really valuable one where it is aspirational, I think, for most young, wealthy shoppers to buy inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. But the question is, is, you know... Are we in a space where you can buy black because you want to buy black? Or, or are we in a space as well where you buy something that's gorgeous, that's high-end or whatever, and then you also find out yeah. that it's black-owned? That's another important uh, mm-hmm. step for us to be in. And so I love bringing in, like, Chris Weber and, and various other, you know, Quavo. That's a cool way to get this started. But it's also, I think it, it, it you got to make sure that you're not just being... Um, that you're not just buying for, for the sake of, of making a political statement, but yeah. that you're buying because the product kicks ass. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful it will. Yeah. yeah. 
It's interesting that when we think of the cannabis market, it's so historically been one aesthetic vision aimed at one kind of subgroup, really? yeah. and to kind of branch out and have it kind of look like an ice, uh, an iPhone store, or look more like hippie, like granola, whatever. To have different aesthetic points of view on who, uh, how to appeal to different users, it makes me think of a signal we had the other day on like muscle milk or muscle powder, and how the aesthetic with that has always been has run so male and so like, yeah. in my opinion, like aggro. But then we saw right. Right, we right. saw like uh, one brand do it in like muted colors and uh, like beiges and like nice fonts and it's like yeah well why aren't why aren't we speaking to different customers with aesthetics and branding and uh, brand partnerships? Yeah, yeah. yeah to adding on that, I, there's a live example on the street of Aspen in Colorado. There's one Aspen at uh, dispensary. When you walk into, it, I cannot mention the name. It looks like a Ralph Lauren in cannabis industry. They well, sell. Yeah. Uh -huh. Leather goods and blankets and mugs, and you have no idea it's a dispensary. I feel like that's the way that you would just talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in markets where the cannabis industry is more established, like California or Colorado, like there there is already like a massive diversity in the types of brands, the types yeah. of retail spaces that there are. It's going to be really interesting to see how fast that all evolves in Manhattan and if figures like uh, Chris Weber are able to change kind of that narrative and make it that sort of more inclusive that I think we're, mm. we're looking for. It's not, so it's not just like 100 different MedMen, you know? Facts. Yeah. Even though MedMen is great. Yes, even though MedMen is wonderful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think going back to what you were talking about, where sometimes you want to find the product is black afterwards, right? Like you, you're buying things and because of the placement, you pick something up, you love it, and then you get to have that moment. In this article here, it kind of speaks to that as well, but more so putting diversity up front and center. So right when it comes to the wine market, that is an essential pairing to the luxury market. When we think about high, you know, fine dining, when it comes to nights out on your yacht, champagne or wine, whatever it is, <laughs> wine is there. But at, the writer in Washington, uh, the Washington Post here says, it's the Washington Post, right? Great. <laughs> the writer notes that the wine world is too vast and varied to just focus on geographical approach and preferences. As we diversify and become more conscious, we have other motivations to choose one wine over another. We may, we may want to fight poverty in underdeveloped countries or support underrepresented winemakers. For example, the Duck and Peach, a new American restaurant in D.C., uh, has this theme of women and wine. And the list features wines made particularly from women or wineries owned or managed by women. So that really speaks to a lot of these restaurants actually trying to push for people of varied experiences to come into their spaces and try uh, marginalized wines, you mm. know. Uh, but this quote from the article sums up pretty well what's happening as we see this um, progression within the uh, wine market. So this person says, my generation isn't earning as much as our parents. We want wines that are accessible and affordable, mm. and we want to know who makes these wines and why they're special. So if the story behind the beverage is just as important as the taste for a lot of these new consumers who are looking for luxury but not necessarily the price, um, how should these companies prioritize storytelling mm. uh, in the luxury market? or prioritize inclusive story. Carrera, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if you can have luxury without the price. I mean, maybe when it comes to wine, it is about the grape. It is about, like, 
the provenance of where the grape comes from, and sometimes that's expensive. But mm. if what some people connect to in a luxury product is the provenance, maybe you can tell stories about different ingredients that you know maybe aren't as hard to procure and aren't as expensive. Um, and so when we think about wine, it, you know, to have that personalized touch of like a sommelier tell you about the yeah. season that the grape was made in, I guess you could have that storytelling process for it, for any product, and, and in a sense that creates a luxury. Well, I. Yeah, I mean, from a marketing perspective, we always want to be conscious of like label fatigue. Like we saw mm. organic got a lot of, even today, there's skepticism around what that means when you put it on top of a product. So yeah. I think we're seeing there's so many different ways for brands to get in front of consumers, whether it's storytelling on TikTok or storytelling on different social medias. Finding those avenues where you get that captive audience is always mm. going to be yeah. a powerful place away from the label fatigue and kind of trying to reduce the conversation to one like yeah bye bye this thumbs up i think that's a really good point kristen I finished talking about the, you know, kind of fandoms and the community being, you know, kind of the new luxury. And I think regardless of, of price point, which used to be determined more by brands, that this mm. is what luxury is. And now the consumer is determining or uh, social media is determining what luxury is. Luxury can be obviously a completely different thing. And it can be solely based on a story and something that feels like it really resonates with you and feels really authentic. Yeah. And, you know, it can take off from there. So. Mm -hmm. If I can talk briefly about, uh, I... I Right out of college, uh, after tour guiding, I worked at a really fancy wine and cheese shop like 20 hours a, a month, right? As, as when I was living in DC and you know the Capitol Hill, these are uh, very professional young millennials because again, this was like 12 years ago, um, 13 years ago. Um, and the, the way that we would, there was a bottle of wine that came from an Argentinian source um, where it was a female-owned uh, bottle. It was a, it was a female-owned uh, winery, right? And it was a little more expensive than the other ones. And I would, if you told a consumer that it was a woman who ran that vineyard in this very machismo world of, like, of, uh, of our Argentinian Malbecs, mm. guaranteed people would buy that bottle, even though it was about $4 more than the similar quality wine. Mm. So I've seen it. It can be proved out. You know, you just people want to know that they're doing something, um, that they're getting that little extra thing. They're paying $4 extra for that extra little boost, you know? I think it's maybe also an element of, like, a shift in consumer thinking from what they consider luxury or what they're paying for is not necessarily a brand name or like history, but yeah. they are paying for like, you know, maybe the knowledge that the people who made the wine were paid well. Um, yeah. That it comes, you know, the story of where it comes from. And also like then, you know, maybe it's from a woman or a person of color. And I think maybe those are the things that make up why you pay more. Yeah. Versus a brand name on the label. Totally. We have a guest comment. I, I have a theory. Yeah. Um, so in some of our research, we found that the, the high net worth individuals um, are concerned about sustainability issues, but not willing to um, hmm. fly commercial, for instance. <laughs> right. <laughs> Scheduled, you know, yes. Should. I even heard a funny story about someone who tried it once and said it should be illegal and he'll never do it again. Um, so we're definitely seeing that there's um, this desire not to compromise their lifestyle. Mm. But um, sustainability these days isn't just about people, uh, planet, it's also about people. Mm. So maybe this is the way that luxury consumers fulfill their inner need to feel like they're contributing to sustainability mm. by supporting people. Yeah. Um, Making a more sustainable industry, right? Exactly. Being yeah. more inclusive. Um, 
this way they don't they can kind of maybe not feel so bad about um, how their behaviors might impact the planet. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that, before we move on to our next signal, we were talking about, you asked such good questions about the, the story building of it all, mm. and talking about label fatigue and sort of my own experience, but you have to remember that storytelling is only part of that. We also have to understand, just as you were saying, the consumer journey, right? Because mm -hmm. that story has to line up with those decision-making, and that's how you can get people to spend that extra 25% on something that is functionally a fairly similar bottle of wine. Okay, last food and beverage one here. Um, so again, back to uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, which is reporting that Midwestern cuisine, from ham salad to jello salad, uh, is becoming an oat delicacy. The journal tells us, quote, at Agnes uh, and restaurants, uh, Agnes in, in Manhattan, and restaurants such as uh, Mr. Digby's in San Francisco, Patty Ann's in Brooklyn, and Emmett's on Grove, again in Manhattan, meatloaf, Twice baked potatoes and other all-stars of Midwestern potluck are finally having their moment on the menu. Uh, Bernie's at Greenpoint looks like a TGI Fridays and is impossible to get into. Um, so this elevated fine dining makes sense in a chaotic area where good comfort food can be something we uh, covet, right? On the other hand, upcharging $40 for a slice of meatloaf can be kind of problematic. I think there's an interesting tension here between celebrating the culture mm. and ironically serving you the food that we don't associate with that, uh, with that culture. So, um, you know, and I think as, di as diners get a little more savvy about their own experience, what it means to dine at a specific place, I wonder, and I'd love to hear from the audience, if there, if there is a tension here, and how do you navigate that tension between high and low, celebrating the, the blooming onions and the, and the ham salads of the world without it becoming like ironic dining? Because I just feel like we've kind of moved past that sort of irony. It, like, it's, it's too problematic to do irony for irony's sake. Is it irony? It, well, I uh, think that's the can't question. Can't people just really actually be enjoying like mozzarella sticks, but maybe it's worth it to pay more for, uh, you know, we come back again to this concept of like paying more for quality ingredients, especially when it comes to like meat, dairy, um, for labor, for, you know, ambiance, for drinks, you know, maybe you want to be drinking the natural wine and not like bottom shelf. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of factors that go into why it costs more and it's not necessarily like an ironic yeah. TGI Fridays kitschy thing. All right, fair enough. Carrera? Yeah, I agree. Irony is on its way out, and we're seeing a lot more, like, uh, earnestness. I think even in any marketing campaign, it's like earnestness is kind of what's winning, even when it comes to Gen Z. Like, they're kind of uh, more interested in, in um, authentic emotions. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm on Team Jackie here. Maybe if you think it's ironic, you might be projecting onto well, the signal. I, you might be right, but I also feel like I think you're right about using the word earnest, yeah. right? Because that is a really valuable thing. I think Gen Zers love it. I think millennials increasingly love it. I struggle with an earnest $40 meatloaf. Yeah. Um, there is something about, look, it's one thing in San Francisco and Manhattan where you can command those prices. But I do often, but that then makes me worry that some of that is like, isn't it hilarious that we're serving you a $40 meatloaf and that you'll pay for it, right? right. So the right way to do it is perhaps what Jackie was suggesting, which is like, no, uh, mozzarella sticks are really, really good. And it's kind of fun to be at a place that doesn't feel like blonde minimalism needs to, needs to be in uh, or whatever. Corey, what are your thoughts? 
So this, the first iteration, iteration 01, will include this high-end T-shirt that'll have a little, uh, you know, NFT-enabled thing inside of it. It'll be like a really cool way for people to really be a part of this membership platform. And I think this is interesting because when we think about where things are going in the future with our shifting demographics and what people think about when it comes to, to luxury, you know, how do luxury companies differentiate themselves in the metaverse when that, you know, quality of material or craftsmanship can't really be seen? It really is just you know, digital environments. Yeah. I feel like blockchain technology yeah. are being talked about in luxury space mm. and metaverse for like million times, but nobody actually think about, let's mm. see, if you validate all the data in fashion supply chain, let's see where the material is made, where the cotton needs grow, who's making the textile, who's making the patterns, who's the designer, yeah. and no one actually talks about it. But how about you give consumer all of those information, but at the same time, you can validate everyone who's on the way of the steps who's like making those garments and give back to them let's mm. say actually Gumti Garzon starting to do this long time ago before there's blockchain or transparency they always have a label of the worker who actually make the garment like their initial mm -hmm. stamp on their clothes mm -hmm. and what about if this style is sold well and you can actually give bonus to this employee who's actually sewing this garment somewhere in Japan and that could be a great idea to use like blockchain instead of just become a marketing yeah. idea in that. fashion. Um, to just add on that, thank you for calling that out too, because I think that's what gives so much energy to Web 3.0 is the decentralization mm -hmm. of the blockchain and getting more creative with how we do business and how we give money. So I think that could be a really interesting way for luxury designers or luxury companies in general to start, you know, showcasing how you can yeah. be more bespoke with uh, sustainability or giving back across the uh, the supply chain narrative. Yeah, and give the yeah. credit back to the team instead of, yeah. let's see, a celebrity designer who's on the front and walking the wrong way and nobody knows there's a hundred people behind him mm. who's working on the collection. Yeah. My theory on new school luxury, I'm going to posit it here. Lee, let me know what you think. Yeah. Is that you, we used to be selling luxury goods based on quality or luxury experiences, luxury travel. I think that we're selling luxury identity, especially mm. with signals like this where, you know, you're building a one-to-one -one of you in a digital world. Yeah. You're buying things that say, hey, I'm the type of person that has uh, a G-Money, you know, Fortnite skin or a Gucci Fortnite skin. Um, my identity is is a creation of, of different cultural touch points of like, oh, well, my identity maybe in the real world is, is that I drink natural wines and I shop at Bloomingdale's, but then I also wear Nikes. It's like this kind of interesting mix that we're all able to create that uh, provides us with more uniqueness, especially in kind of like a mass-produced world where everyone can have the Louis yeah. Vuitton Neverfull. Mm. My identity is that I have like these specific luxury brands to create something that is completely new. Well, and that's an interesting challenge for luxury brands, right? Mm -hmm. Because luxury brands sell you products. Products are fundamentally based on, the value of product is based on scarcity. Right. But in a universe where everything is built of ones and zeros, there's no such thing as scarcity. Right. They gotta sell them something else. Yeah. And what you maybe, what the, the product there might be identity and services because right. there is no scarcity in the metaverse. Gen Z is building luxury identity based off of an, uh, an eclectic and unique mix of luxury products. Yeah, 
eclectic and unique mix of luxury products. We're getting that tattooed on ourselves. Um, okay, we do have to talk about Kanye West. I apologize. Um, so I think this is an interesting signal here. Uh, the rapper, formerly known as Ye, uh, posted this black image on his Instagram that read, look to the children, look to the homeless as the biggest inspiration for all design. And a lot of fans were divided by this comment, uh, particularly because, uh, yeah, we, when you consider the homeless as a, an influence, how are you giving back to the homeless as well? So I think this is really interesting because when we hear about Kanye utilizing homelessness as an influence, we also think about Balenciaga. Now, Balenciaga was selling these 1K distressed shoes uh, and this was some form of luxury. And I think when we think about the future of luxury in association with the trends when it comes to rising class tension as well, I think it's interesting that luxury might need to, in some senses, hide mm. in order for it to survive. So I, my question to you, this might be a little bit esoteric, but um, what do you think brands' responsibility is in navigating class tension mm. and also making sure that those who interact with it are um, responsible. Uh, yeah. Sure. Uh, I'm really curious about this because I find that there is a preoccupation with the performance of sustainability, which is juxtaposed to the uh, <laughs> very um, this heartening framings that people will have. And yeah. so Kanye, like, shocked the world for the umpteenth time this year. Right. saying something that feels very kanye personally. Mm, yeah. But he's not new. And this isn't new either. To your point, people... It reminds me of Derelict from... Yeah, uh, like, this is, a, this, is, this, is, this is a thing that we've seen. And I think there's also a framing to your earlier point around, like, people being like, I'm not the kind of person that would buy that Balenciaga mm. collection. Mm. I'm the kind that buys the understated one. Right. Mm -hmm. I, like so, like yeah. I would never be caught in that, but you can catch me in the summer collection. And I think <laughs> there, there is this kind of tension where brands struggle with this because brands deal in the perception of how people want to be perceived, and yeah. they make things to help you establish further or uh, diminish that perception to your own good, right? And so I think that Kanye saying it publicly is interesting because other people have been doing it publicly, but just not saying it explicitly. Yeah. And Kanye's just an explicit person, complete sentence. And so yeah. it's <laughs> also why there's division, because there was always division. It's just that when Kanye fissures something, there's almost this need to pick a side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the brands have already been doing it, and people picked a long time ago, mm -hmm. and just decided what they were okay with on a, toler on a tolerance perspective and still wanted things. Yeah. What do you make, just very quickly, Jonathan, what do you make of, of Matt's question about class fitting into Because I know that you're saying that about Balenciaga, but is it, you know, we were saying in, in the briefing on, um, on, on poverty that, like, you know, Gen Z and a lot of millennials are very skeptical of capitalism. How is a luxury brand supposed to exist in, in that space? So my, my, my best living example of this is the story of Gucci and Dapper Dan, right? So Dapper Dan sure. was dressing an entire culture for 30 years. Yeah. He was doing it from an impoverished area yeah. in New York mm. that people enjoy going to Whole Foods but not necessarily living in. Mm. So Gucci wakes up one day and he's like, man, you know what? I just, maybe it's time to give Dapper Dan credit 
Mm. <sighs> yeah, let's do it. And let's let's you know what? Let's definitely do it. Let's make a billboard. Let's give them a let's give them a school. Let, it's yeah, man, Dapper Dan. Mm. And so like, they didn't like how he made his clothes. But they knew the impact couldn't be avoided. So they yeah. had a 25-year runway to watch him, to sue him, right. to go through litigation, to essentially bankrupt him. Mm. And then we're like, honestly, let's make him an equity partner. <laughs> because we're going to outlast it. Yeah. And to me, that is the fundamental question. These houses aren't called houses because they're brands. They're houses because they were named behind people. Right. So they're it's like a medieval concept. They're no, they're institutions. Yeah. Like they're, we can't we can't call them houses because they're like brands. People built the thing and ensured that the thing would continue long after the hand wringing about whether this should be or shouldn't mm. be exists. And late stage capitalism gives them the need, the ability to perform across the public sector because some yeah. of these are public facing companies. So we can navigate whether we think the collection is true or not. But if the stock price is where the stock price needs to be, the hedge fund will respond in in, in kind. And I think, yeah. to me, I try to, I think I think your question is a good one, but I think it requires like a first principles conversation mm-hmm. sure. about what it is we're discussing so we can be honest about the ethereal and the practical and, yeah. and acknowledge the delta between those two things. Yeah, and there are major, major design, I mean, like um, Tulsi and Cabana, have done incredibly badly, candidly, at, at, yeah. at managing some of these issues, but they're still lux. People would still buy that. And mm-hmm. so I actually think there's a moment where consumers kind of have to choose, like, what, it's, it goes to what you were saying, Carrera, it's which of these, how, what level of my own sense of identity, my own sense of performance, of performing luxury matches with these brands. And I can't be a Dolce mm. & Gabbana person, but I might find ways to excuse myself to be a, a Gucci person. And the imperative for the brand is to minimize the hurdles people need to do to jump over and become mm. one of those people and join that tribe. Right. Aaron, did you have a final yeah, thought? Yeah, just one other, like, I started talking about label fatigue, thinking about food, but when I think about the, like, finance row outfit, you know, it's always been the Patagonia mm-hmm. sweater vest, it's been the Allbirds, like, foam runners, yeah. both <laughs> super uh, sustainable from mm-hmm. a, like, impact mm-hmm. on the energy perspective, get absolutely roasted because the people who are wearing the attire are not doing the actual work. So it's an interesting yeah. consumer choice that they're making individually. I mean, when I worked for a Patagonia store, we were selling a lot of, uh, I forget what it was called, but you know, that like Heather Gray sweater vest <laughs> yeah. in San Francisco. Sure, 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 yeah. And Patagonia cut their like corporate uh, purchasing packaging deals mm. for their clothes. And so, I think there's a really interesting when we're talking about the consumer choice and the cultural like resonance. It's mm-hmm. for a brand to navigate. I mean, it's something that Allbirds is still facing and Patagonia yeah. is still trying to navigate. Fashion luxury brands usually have this tension between authenticity, um, especially. Uh, it, it makes me think of, of the most recent Kanye news of today, where his his Gap collection is dropped and he's selling them in big bags like this size. Yeah, and there's no like designated sizing that's all just stuffed in there is almost like an anti-luxury. You yeah. have to work for it. It's, it looks like uh, crap. Um, <laughs> but I think that he's, you know, he has this like anxiety of, well, how do I stay authentic? Well, maybe I'll just make it harder to buy or something, which is an interesting thing that we've seen brands try and solve. I don't know if that's the solution, but it's certainly yeah, that's top cool. of mind. Yeah. I think that that is, can I just, I mean, I think that that's really clever because I don't know if you've ever been in like a gap or like in a major 
city or like in New York, but like they're not necessarily like able to keep the shelves pristinely sure. folded and stocked. And so if you're going to show up in a store like The Gap, you want to control the way that you show up. And if you can't control like how often the store associates are going to be folding your stuff, yeah, you might as well just throw it in a in a but big. It- Bag on the floor. And is say, that appropriating H and M culture though, or Forever Twenty One? You could nap in those stores under a pile of clothing. Store culture? I don't know. I mean, yeah. the, the the question of like what's okay to appropriate is yeah, I, much I'll bigger. Be, yes. <laughs> okay. I want to do. Uh, we're kind of dancing around generational wealth here, and I want to talk very quickly about this really interesting article I found in in Forbes that points out that um, something is going to happen uh, in about the next decade that is going to really fundamentally change luxury. In, uh, in the world, and that is that trillions and trillions of dollars are controlled disproportionately by baby boomers, right? They have gotten a lot more financial opportunities than millennials, even Gen Xers, certainly than Gen Zers, and baby boomers are starting to shuffle off their mortal coil, right? Uh, which means that there is a large number of people who come from wealthy families who at some point in the next 10 to 15 years, or 10 to 20 years, you know, 10 to 30, whatever, um, are going to get really rich, really, really rich. Not just the money that's sitting in your trust fund rich, but like, you know, we'll be taxing this maybe, but, you know, suddenly you're going to come into possession of $15 million or something. That is not going to happen for most people, but it is going to happen for some people, and it's going to change the relationship, as this article talks about, in your brand community. If you're selling the starter Rolex now to a millennial at two grand, five grand, by 2035, they may have the cash to lay out for a $64,000 watch, right? Again, very small group of people, but it's going to be a pretty fundamental change because that will go from the 0.001% of millennials to the 0.01 and you know, you've gone up 100x in people who are willing to buy that. So um, it's a little bit ghoulish. I guess the question is, should brands start planning for this right now? You know, is this the time to start thinking about your 2035 strategy when millennials get rich? <laughs> I mean, it definitely is if you're a whiskey company and you, your stuff has to age for 18 to 25 years. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I love that. Or even it's probably huge news for, like, Furniture companies, especially ones that like sell, use really high-end wood products and stuff. Like, mm. I love. I mean, I think that's really smart. And for the 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 Tiffany's again, the the high-end. I mean, maybe not apparel, but mm-hmm. um, watches, jewelry, earrings, rings. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, time to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one part of being on TikTok uh, today, and anyone might, might uh, also identify with this, is knowing way more about Hermes than you ever thought you ever needed to know. Mm-hmm. But my learning from learning about Hermes and how to get a Birkin is that it's almost like an exercise in world building. You can't just walk in and buy one. You have to buy a bangle. Then you have to buy a scarf. You have to buy, like, tableware. And it's almost like you have to prove your loyalty to this brand for a certain amount of time before they take you back behind the scenes and they sell and they show you one. You don't get to pick the color. If it's lime green, you better like lime green. Um, but it's an interesting idea that, that brands can engage in kind of a world-building exercise, grow with people, yeah. ask for buy-in, and give buy-out almost uh, in return. Hermes has a, um, a gardening trowel for $300 that I have my, I will never buy, but I have my eye on. Uh-huh. Um, la- yeah, last comment from Corey. I also want to maybe link this back to the first signal in the briefing, which was, I think it was the first signal around the social clubs yep. and, and whatnot. And so it begs the question, if, if your hypothesis plays out that wealth transfer is going to be substantial for an audience and we're seeing interest in leaning in, toward, in the luxurious purchases now, 
is there going to be a growing tension? Well, is there going to be one more extreme representation of what luxury looks like in 20 years if it's already social clubs now when there maybe isn't that wealth and then the wealth comes into play? Sure. How much louder or more significant does that start to manifest itself as? But on the flip side, we also talked a lot about things like uh, ghastly, non-sustainable aspects of this too. So I wonder if we're going to see a bifurcation and a significant tension between more extreme representations of luxury, but in the contrast of environments that might be more challenged to to be able to, um, what's the word, uh, justify exactly. Yeah. Are, are you are you flying the PJ when it's 135 degrees out and mm-hmm. you know climate uh, <laughs> the climate's a disaster? Yeah. Whose responsibility? Sorry, last yeah, no, It is. I mean, back to your point about in theory you may want to be more sustainable, but you it's not convenient, right? So then who who has to sort of bear that, that sure. weight then? Is it gonna further divide that to Corey's point? Well if your parents give you twenty five million dollars, suddenly everything becomes fairly convenient. Um, <laughs> let's move to wrap ups. We'll do these lightning quick Carrera, I'll start with you. We saw our EOC map earlier, I'll even bring it up. Which one of them do you feel like was the most transformative? for you today? Yeah, I mean, perceptual diversity is up there as number one. We've talked so much about, I mean, even personally, I feel like the evolution of storytelling is world building, and how are you going to bring more people from different places into that world? Yeah, the perception part of perceptual diversity. Mm -hmm. I love that. Matt, what what tension do you feel like was most important to understand today's conversation? Uh, uh, I'm kind of going, I've been thinking a lot about what Jonathan was talking Mm -hmm. about, about late-stage capitalism and what that means for the future of luxury. Yeah. Uh, so that's just something, that's a cultural tension that I think brands are going to have to sit with and get real uh, strategic about mm. what the future looks like uh, in this moment. I think that's very fair. Um, Jackie, what's a core insight about young luxury consumers that you think is really valuable from, from today? We've talked a lot about the luxury industry, but what is a consumer insight that, I, that we've spoken about that strikes you? Well, I think we've, I mean, we've mentioned it that like luxury isn't just for the 1%, 0.1%. It is, in a lot of ways, much more accessible for many people. But I think one thing that is, and maybe this is a little open-ended, but I think we don't really know yet 100% what Mm -hmm. the youth consumer considers Mm. luxury. I think we're sort of seeing a shift in in what it means. And we know that Gen Z doesn't necessarily care that much about things being expensive or a certain label. And their their values and what they consider luxury is, is kind of, always in flux. Yeah. Um, and Gemma, uh, round us out. What should brands take away from today's conversation? What's I have good? a lot to say about uh, it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, well, I, I gave you the hardest one of all, maybe one or two things. I feel like everything needs to start with, like, a commitment, and the brands need to follow it through, like, from the zero to the end. Mm-hmm. And, like, diversity imperatives, like, it takes time. And, like, Gen Z and millennial, they really prioritize like personalizations and authenticity like in their experience and when they buy the shop and they consume in everything they do on their daily life and they like turn away from immediately from like super transactional initiative and I feel like brands need to think about like from external strategy like what can they do to promote like accountabilities Mm. and transparency and internally Probably they think, can think about, like, what can they do using their unique resources to, like, deliver, like, sustained progress mm-hmm. and impact over time and using their, like, new brand strategies and to using all of those unique resources as, like, the tool to advance their market adaption yeah. 
and to meet the needs of like young consumers. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Uh, got a lot, a lot of work to do, but um, I love that. Well, that's going to take us through our briefing for the day. Thank you to, to Matt, to Carrera, Jackie, and Gemma, and of course, our audience. Thank you guys for joining online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon New York time. While you're there, jump in the comments section. Let us know your thoughts on the day's subject, your luxury hacks, and perhaps your thought on thoughts on forty dollar. Meatloaf, um, we are uh, going to be airing cultural intelligence sprints over the next two weeks. You're going to get a chance uh, to get really up to date on a whole bunch of topics, everything from Gen Z to health uh, to why we do cultural strategy in the first place. It's going to be really amazing stuff. Please tune into our LinkedIn. This is going to be, this is a real, this is a real uh, Sparks and Honey uh, 301 level uh, class for people to tune into. It's going to be great stuff, so keep an eye out for that. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today at Everyday's Briefings, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to give you a tour of it. So um, until uh, our cultural sprint series and a couple weeks from now, consider yourselves briefed.